You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Yesterday, I took my kayak out into the Everglades. I paddled across a lake through a series of mangrove tunnels and then out into a remote lagoon where I fished for a while and then just sat. My little boat rocked in gentle waves. An alligator surfaced and upon seeing me, gently submerged and swam away. An osprey hovered, curled like a fist, plunged into the water and then rose, shivering off spray, a fish wiggling in its talons. Then all seemed still for a while, with only a whisper of wind riffling the lake. A swallow-tailed kite appeared, swooping and soaring in silence just above the mangroves, a graceful miracle in motion. I felt full. I simply needed to be there for a few hours out in the wild, just to listen, watch, observe, all the more because I've been hunkered down in what I call the writing cave, a place where I am deep, deep, deep into words, the words of this book, in fact. I felt I needed to shake off words just as that osprey had shaken off water. I have a theory. When our ancient ancestors developed the capacity for language, words became increasingly all-encompassing. Words became not only our primary way of engaging with others socially, but they also became the tool by which we each conduct our own inner dialogue. Language became so powerful both interpersonally and intrapersonally, that the web of words in our heads often felt more real to us than the web of life outside our heads. Language, we discovered, was a tool we used to describe reality, but it also could become a substitute for reality. We might say it was the original form a virtual reality. Christianity evolved as, among other things, a language, a set of words pointing to a set of ideas. This language was necessary to liberate people from another language, the language of empire and domination. This liberating language evolved and shaped the inner architecture of generations of Christians, furnishing them with foundational terms like sin, grace, and salvation. These terms were woven together in stories, and the stories were woven together in a framing story, another phenomenon of language. But like everything, language evolves, meanings modify. What once was liberating can become a cage in which we pace, dreaming of freedom. Many people today are pacing the cage. Old Christian words have been emptied of their substance or their original meanings have mutated. The old framing story doesn't fit the reality we experience and feels instead like a conspiracy theory or manic fantasy. We can't help but feel that the language of Christianity creates a make-believe world, a rabbit hole, an alternative reality where angels and demons are real, but climate change and evolution aren't. 
The gap between actual reality and the Christian linguistic reality stretches our credulity to a breaking point. That's why many can no longer stay Christian. And that's why many of us who choose to stay Christian must deconstruct the Christianity we inherited and shake off much of its language. I'm really super happy to be in conversation today with Todd Winward. Todd, you and I met some years ago. I remember meeting you, I think it was at a CAC-related event, although it may have been somewhere else. But you have a much longer history with the Center for Action and Contemplation than I do. And I wondered if you could just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit about your story with the CAC. Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, it actually was the first Wild Goose conference that we, you and I met. You had blown me away with Everything Must Change, and I was an aspiring author who was just starting my own book, Rewilding the Way, and you were kind enough to walk and talk with me for a good long 10 minutes, and that was a gift. So, But I'd been searching for authentic and emerging transformative Christianity for quite some time. And yeah, when I was a young 23-year-old, I had a chance to go to this new place called the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I told a young father, Richard Rohr, had just started up something transformative. And so I was able to attend and immerse myself in what they called the School for Prophets back then. And it was an immersive multi-month residency. It blew me away. It it was a transformational, immersive catechesis for me as a young lad. (laughs) That's fantastic. So with that, I I promise you, my math isn't good enough to figure out your age, but this would have been the early 1990s. Is that about right? That's right. Very good. Something happened between then and when we met and you wanted to talk about, and you were writing a book called Rewilding the Way. Tell me about your connection with the wild. On the book notes, you're supposed to, as an author, write something that makes you different from other people. And one of the things my editor suggested was that I write that I spent more than a thousand nights outdoors. I've been an avid wilderness leader, trip, trip expedition planner. I've started public schools with an outdoor emphasis. I've worked with Outward Bound and Knowles, the two outdoor trek companies. And when I was in my early 20s, actually encouraged by the CAC at the time, I created something called Peak Experiences. As a you know zealous 23-year-old, 24-year-old, I wanted to bring people into the outdoors to help have transformative spiritual experiences that would lead to social change. Say that again, to have transformative spiritual experiences that lead to social change. That's it? Yeah, this idea of of the inner and the outer and that the inner spirit changing, having a mountaintop experience or a desert rewilding experience might cause people to have a different social agenda. And so I, I found that ever since I was a high schooler in California going to summer camps, I found the ability for the outdoors, for fire, for rain, for earth, for air to, to bring us back to an elemental relationship with, with seasons and with the earth. Tell me a little bit about your uh, traditional religious upbringing uh, and how that connected or didn't connect with your experience of the sacred in the wild. I grew up in a polite Presbyterian church. I guess the frozen chosen would be kind of the, the nickname <laughs> that we might give it um, with a lot of, you know, 
fear, fear, sex, drugs, and rock and roll were all taboo. Um, so somewhat evangelical, you know, I, I grew up and, and had an earnest heart for Christ, uh, maybe like yourself in my early teens. And, but I found that everything in my life felt very manicured and commodified and terraformed by, by humanity. And I longed by the time I was 18 to go to wild, wild spaces. I began going to college up in Portland, Oregon, sea kayaking and wilderness tripping. And then that was the beginning of it all. So for a young guy, you and I have so much in common in this way, but for a young guy, part of that is just adventure. And there's something exhilarating and, and exciting and is deeply, deeply wholesome about that kind of adventure. But part of that for you, there was a spiritual dimension to it, I guess. Can I ask you to speak some more about that? Yeah, well, I began to look at Jesus's own life as a pattern, and I began to see his own days of testing in the wilderness, and it really connected with my own immersive. As, as you know, the, the wildness, you, you get into undomesticated space where you're not in control, and you have to adapt yes. and respond. And I love what I think it might have been Belden Lane's first said, but something that, you know, the desert in the wilderness is where you learn what you fiercely love and what to fiercely ignore or resist. And so then I began to look at the desert, desert fathers and this leaving Babylon or leaving exile or leaving the Roman Empire. And as you know, I come from a Mennonite tradition now, um, which, which does view Constantine and the going, you know, Christianity coming complicitly in bed with the Roman Empire as the fatal apostasy or the defection from the Christ path. And so seeing the, 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 the Thomas Merton and the other monks going advocating to go to the desert. Um, that's where we find spiritual strength and clarity, I think, in order to speak back to empire or to conventional yes. ways of thinking. You know, as two guys who grew up going to church and were exposed to a lot of Bible, when you say that, it makes me think how the word wilderness and desert, when I grew up, whether it was Moses leading the people through the wilderness, through the desert toward the promised land, it's so interesting the associations I had with that were 100% negative. And one of the things I've wondered about is how different it would be if we translated wilderness as the wild and that we were to say, look, in the Middle East, if you're not in a city and if you're not on a farm near a river, <laughs> the wild is the desert, you know? <laughs> and maybe those purely negative associations with wilderness we're part of our own bias being projected on those biblical texts. I don't know. Does that, does that ring true with your experience? It does. But I think that piece of adventure or fascination, I didn't, I didn't feel those things to avoid, but more like these are the spaces where taboos break and where transformation yes. happens and reading about Jacob wrestling, uh, yes. you know, and getting a sacred wound. Those were like deep mythology things that even as a young, earnest evangelical type, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know the mystery yes. of the wild and, and to know, to know that you're going to come back changed. I guess that's the piece that I always read about in the Bible. And it really blew me away when I suddenly recognized that Jesus only after going to the Jordan and then going into the wilderness, did he come back to do his public ministry that he, his, yes. his clarity, there's that clarity in the desert. And that's, I guess the piece that fairly early on, I, I stopped demonizing the desert and seeing it as a place of 
of transformation. But that's that's only like buyer beware. Like you're going to get changed, and that might be why a lot of us <laughs> us conventional Christians don't like that. You use that uh, word manicured before, and you think about the experience of a kind of manicured religion where everything is neat and clean and straight lines and decently and in order and maximum comfort, minimum, uh, so that if someone changes the slightest thing in the liturgy, people are up in arms as if a tornado had ripped through their spiritual life. And then you think part of the experience of being in the wild is danger and is humility. I Just a few days ago, I was... Uh, uh, out in the Rocky Mountains, uh, I had a speaking engagement there, and I stayed over two days to do some fly fishing. I was out alone on a river, and I was aware I could make one false step on a slippery rock in the water, and I could be in a lot of trouble. And so there is this sense of heightened, like it, it matters whether I plant my foot correctly here or whether I'm sloppy and careless, you know. It ups the ante, doesn't it, for, for life in intense ways. It does, and it, it sort of brings things to the basic elements of real stress rather than our false stress that we set us upon oh, ourselves, yeah. you know? And I often bring youth, you know, 10th graders to the wilderness, and, and I would talk to them about the stresses they felt at school versus the stresses out here, which really could kill you, and yet setting up your tent properly gives you more you pay more attention to that once you realize, yeah. Oh I, love, I love the thinking of, too, of being able to spend the night out allows you to be a bit less fearful about loss and empire. It's flexing your muscle of, of liberation when one spends the night on their own terms in the wild. I know how to survive. I'm not dependent on electricity and, and TikTok and uh, running water. And then comes those experiences that actually feel... They feel theological, even though it's not like you're hiking in the mountains and you see a cliff and on the cliff face, a Bible verse is written. It's more uh, the experience of awe or fragility. You realize, gosh, I, if I turn my ankle out here, I'm, I'm very fragile. It's the feeling of how great the stars are, the awareness that there are other creatures, some for whom I am a predator and some for whom I could be prey, and the sense that it's not all about me. I mean, there's so much that happens in those wilderness experiences that shake us out of, I'm just thinking of junior high or high school students who are, so much of what's going on in them necessarily because of their development is about their, their place in the pecking order, their social status, uh, you know, how many likes they just got for what, what they posted on Instagram or whatever. And there's something that you come in contact with, your, with yourself in a way when you're outdoors hiking or especially when you're alone. And then something of a spiritual dimension experience Look, I think there are some people who are going to be listening, and they've never had an experience like that. And I wonder if you could just talk about what it's like, what it's been like for you. I love what you said, and there's a there's a decentering and a recentering, right? That can yes. happen, or a dislocation yes. and a relocation. And the yes. notion of being situated in history, situated in a watershed, there's a humility as well as the grandiosity that both happens, and the small self, in my mind, gets more and more erased 
the chance of, yes. of connecting and communion and true communion and seasonality. It's a detox from uh, so many toxic parts of theology and also a detox from so many toxic parts of our society. I guess I just was thinking about those people you said who've never experienced that. I wanted to bring back just something I loved about your book, Brian. I think it was chapter eight about Christianity as a failed tool for transformation. That's tying back to my initial thirst to come to the CAC 30 years ago. They had a school for prophets that rocked my world. And that was one that I would call that a curated catechism or a curated training. Yes. In my own book that I wrote, Rewind the Way, I discovered that the early Christians might have had up to three years of experiential training before they were called a follower of the way. It just blew my mind yes. to imagine, like, what would that look like? And so on one hand, to have a curated, planned, creative uh, training by mentors at the CAC was, was mind-blowing. Then the other was the raw experience of the wilderness and that encounter that left me changed and allowed me to come back to dominant consciousness in a different way. And then thirdly, having communities of practice, of, of advanced practitioners around me. So those were like three different mm. journeys I've taken. Southside Church in the height in the early 90s also was the hub of sanctuary liberation. And I was able to be part of a, that community for two years with John Fife. And they were protesting our own government and putting signs up saying we obey a bigger law than than exporting these these refugees back to their homes to faith death squad so like the combination of richard Rohr and the cac raw wilderness experience and sanctuary and liberation movements and latin american theology those were all wilding for me those are incredibly incubating for me Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. There's a sense when we enter the wild, we're stepping out of the confines of normal and taboos and rules of normal social life. When we engage in protest, we're, we're going wild too. We're challenging some of those standard unquestioned realities. Hey, I just want to make a couple connections. First, that school for prophets in some ways was the inspiration for what later evolved as the living school in which you have been a student participant. And the fact that you went from this experience that 
talked about the inner life and inner transformation to social activism is just also a reminder of what uh, Richard Rohr often says is the most important word in the CAC's name, which is the word and, center for action and contemplation, that we're trying to put those, that we don't want contemplation without action or action without contemplation. We really see the two of them needing to be yoked, married, like two wings on a bird, so to speak, that they they really uh, go together. You mentioned that chapter eight, Todd, about uh, the lack of transformation that we see in a lot of religious people, including, let's be honest, a lot of clergy. I mean, it seems like every week there's a new scandal that comes out that shows us that behind the curtain or outside the pulpit, we often see that the shiny image uh, wasn't backed up by a life of, of integrity. And this sense that when the structures of our religion aren't working to bring about that transformation, we need to be jolted into some disruptive experience that also has a new curriculum. I want to go into sort of two different tacks here, but the first is I'd like to ask you, when you're out in the wild, how would you describe the experience, the, the curriculum that you're exposed to? And then the second question is, you've also been involved in taking very, very seriously your geographical place. And so I wonder if you could talk about both of those. You can mash them together or talk about one and then the other. But it seems to me this is all part of the curriculum of a real life of transformation. Yeah, I think in particular, learning how to become a person of place is the new curriculum for myself. And I was just Hmm. reading, thinking about your book uh, and, and what it said about what's the effect that Christianity is having on economic inequality, racism, divisiveness, global ecocide. And for me, defecting from the consumer narrative that says I can have anything I want at any time I want and throw it away in any way I want, becoming a person of place, a watershed way person. And that's the curriculum that I've designed with Ched Myers being my inspiration and watershed discipleship is this idea of how do I learn as a colonizer, as, as a settler, how do I settle well? And so the yeah. curriculum for me is learning how to humble my taste buds, to learn how to change and eat the things that are here and available in season, to change my pocketbook and my schedule, to do the things that are right when the time is telling me it's right. So I've become a little less about adventure and extremes in the wilderness and much more about living with nature as one of many citizens of my watershed. So this idea of of apple harvesting and pressing when it's time to do that, planting garlic in late fall when it's time to do that. We do a water blessing in the spring when the freezes are done and the water is now flooding back into the land. And to be able to honor the thousand-year-old Taos Pueblo tradition and then the 500-year Hispanic acequia tradition, waterway tradition, is, is a beautiful honoring of cultures here. At this stage in your life, that work of deep embeddedness in a watershed and in a place with history, this feels like it's an essential part of your ongoing growth as, as a Christian disciple. It, it feels like this is part of what's teaching you and forming you and shaping you. That's right. I think I've matured 
into being a person of place. And I love how that is an antidote to, to the racism, the economic inequality, the ecocide, and the conspicuous consumption that we have. Yeah, my path of, as a Christian has caused me to become rooted in place. And it's my own metanoia, my own conversion um, from the kind of, uh, you know, as Jim Wallace has said in the past with sojourners, that when you convert, you convert to something specific and away from something specific. And for me, yes. the path to local, becoming one, one member in a watershed among many creatures and denizens, learning to apple press when it's time to press apples, to uh, go and bless the waters when the waters come. I've been able to live into the traditions and be welcomed by the Pueblo people here in Taos Pueblo who honor the waters as they come back. And the thousand-year tradition that they have and the 400-year tradition that Hispanic Asequia people who have lived agriculturally, I'm learning from them how to be a person of place that feels like communion. It feels like what Christ would do rather than what a consumer would do and an exceptional, an exceptional greedy one that I used to be. <laughs> so that's yes. been my conversion. So you are, in many ways, exemplifying and giving kind of a specific, your own life experience of this struggle that I, I tried to address in this book, Do I Stay Christian? This feeling that I can't just keep going through the old program of Christian life. It's not enough for my spiritual life. It's not making enough difference in me. It's I'm not making enough difference in the world. And so you've gone on this through this process first of spending so many nights sleeping out under the stars and and reconnecting with the wild world. And then in more recent years, embedding yourself in a place, including connecting with the indigenous people of this place before colonization, in a sense, tapping into the wisdom that they're uh, so generous to share and connecting with the, the rhythms of the seasons and part of what it means to be a, a living creature in an environment. I think this is something that certainly rings true with me and with so many people uh, that I know. I love that you and I are so similar in that way and that we both are learning to settle into place. And I, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, has been so so instrumental to me about becoming a naturalized citizen. I've looked up the Immigration and Naturalization Service requirements for someone to become a citizen of the United States. And those same requirements I've applied to myself. Have I learned the law of the land? Am I a positive contributor to my community? And there's about eight, I wrote a small article about this that has gotten some traction here in town because I don't dare call myself native but I don't want to call myself a tourist either. I'm not just yes. a visitor and I'm not just a colonizer. And so can I be a naturalized citizen? That really is evocative for me and for many yes. people who want to live well, who are owning, owning all those burdens of being a colonizer, being a uh, extractor. How do we live well again? It's a conversion to place. And so yes. I love looking at the ancient, the ancient Jewish covenants with the land and the idea of the land having a Sabbath of 
Jesus being baptized, not in the Jordan, but into the Jordan. You know, he became a watershed preacher and defender, I think. And I like thinking yes. of that. That he, he had about a 30-mile region. I'd like to have that. <laughs> yes, 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 Todd. Oh, my. Well, this has been such a, a rich conversation. I'm so grateful for the example that you are and the wisdom you've shared in your writings and the example of this beautiful work um, that you're doing in uh, Taos Pueblo. We'll put, uh, make sure to put links in the uh, show notes for this episode because I really hope everyone will learn about what you're doing. And it strikes me that this is something that could catch on, isn't it? I mean, when you and Ched Myers began uh, talking about this years ago and dreaming about where this could go, I think your hope is that more and more of us could experience rewilding, replacing, relocating into the location where we actually are and learning how to be naturalized citizens of this little piece of earth where we live. Yes? Yeah, Brian, I think it's a real danger for those of us who have privilege to think about replacing ourselves by purchasing our little bit of land and maybe going yes. on nature, nature hikes or going on a canoe every now and then into the waters around you. And, and imagining yourself to be one with, you know, I think the justice <laughs> element. And I, yes. I guess what I'm loving about what I see in your work, where you're both a theologian and a strategist and an activist, and yes. what the Center for Action and Contemplation is, is reinventing a little bit itself as what does it mean to be a school for profits again? And I think what you said about the threefold almost of the initial raw wilderness experience, the curated training and thirdly, a, a becoming a body of a transformed community. Uh, those are like three steps that we can take to, to really sink into place and become that leaven in the loaf that, that Jesus originally was steaming. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well, I think it, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to end without saying we wake up every day with this awareness that the way human beings have been living with the earth really for 10,000 years, but really the, the problems have intensified in the last couple centuries as we, human beings in their number and in their extraction from the earth, we know we're living in an unsustainable way. We know our way of life has to change. And we believe that part of this change is a deeply spiritual transformation that has to do with changing the way we see, changing the way we spend, changing the way we earn, changing the way we relate, changing the way we travel. In some ways, this process that we're inviting people into is not just about personal fulfillment. It really is about the future of the human species on this beautiful planet. And I think you and I both share this sense that this isn't just for personal enrichment. This is, there are, are very serious planetary issues at stake right now. Anything you'd like to say about that before we close? I think it's so important to not feel despairing, to not browbeat ourselves and say how terrible we are. There's been a lot that needs to change, but I love what the ancient church fathers called a conversion of manners. At any moment, we have the opportunity to drop the mindset of the colonizer. That's what Robin Wall Kimmerer said, and it strikes to my heart. At any moment, we have the opportunity to drop the mindset of the colonizer. 
And it again allows to know that the earth is inviting us, the native people are inviting us to live in a simpler way connected with all things. And so there's a rejoicing and an invitation that's always there for us. Oh, that's so beautiful. I should add uh, that you and I are having this conversation, uh, you're outdoors, uh, finding a, a, a signal where we could have this conversation. I think I just heard a, a crow or a magpie back in the background there. And it's, uh, and we've heard some traffic going by. Um, but that's just a reminder of what we're really talking about in this episode. Todd, thank you so much. It's, it's been a pleasure to be in this conversation with you. Oh, such a joy. Thank you for the path we're walking together. I love just to, I think I'd like to close with what Wendell Berry has done with Jesus's words and said, do unto those downstreams as you would have those upstream do unto you. And that just feels like a, a simple way of moving forward one step at a time. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'd like to leave you with this short reflection from part three of Do I Stay Christian? In the wild, under the sun, in the weather, with our bare feet on soil and rock, we can begin to break through to feel the truth. We are not independent ghost in machine or spirit in meat monads. We are interdependent events that happen here, on and in and with and as part of the earth, which is part of larger solar, galactic, and cosmic systems. Every breath tells us that we are porous. Every meal and every trip to the bathroom tell us the same thing. What was in air and soil was captured in a zesty mango that I ate and that became part of me. Both the mango and I depend on nuclear reactions within the sun to keep us alive. Sun, space, earth, soil, air, wind, rain. We are all part of one great wild web that does not depend on our language to keep functioning. That is why I took my kayak into the Everglades yesterday. That is why I sat in wordless wonder as the swallow-tailed kite banked, dove, and hovered over the mangroves. I, who love words and make my living by them, need to soar above words, especially my own, in the wild. If this episode has raised questions for you, we'll devote a final episode in this season to responding to listener questions. You'll find information in the show notes and how to leave a recorded or written question, and I look forward to responding. Thanks to the Center for Action and Contemplation for all of your support for this podcast. Thanks especially to our wonderful producer, Corey Wayne, and uh, all of his artistry and support. And a special thanks to each of you for listening, for your attention, for your care, for your interest in learning how to see. And if you found this uh, series helpful, I hope you'll share it with someone you know and love.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.